to introduce to you probably my best friend in the whole world outside of my own family. A uh, man that I've lived with for four years at Wheaton College. He's captain of the Wheaton College baseball team, and he was the only baseball academic All-American to ever come from Wheaton College. Many of you know his father, Bobby Richardson, but Ron is a great Christian, a great baseball player, a great scholar in his own right, and he's also a great public speaker. Probably the best commendation I could give him this morning is for his patience, for putting up with me for four years. Ron? Thank you very much, Frank. I would like to know what you want me to do for you after, <clears throat> after the service. <clears throat> Actually, it wasn't too hard to put up with Frank. He was a very easy roommate to get along with. He said that I was academic All-American, and that he didn't tell you what position I played. I was a catcher. And there are not too many catchers around, so it's not too difficult to be academic All-American playing catcher. I would like to just share with you for a couple of minutes sort of my testimony and, and maybe just bring in a couple of verses. I had the great privilege of growing up in a Christian home. My mother and my father both knew Jesus Christ and from an early age I was able to have the Word of God read to me in Bible stories and so on. Throughout my life I was in church. Throughout my life I was really seeking to live for the Lord. Partially because I accepted Christ at a young age and, and I really wanted to live for Him because I loved Him. And partially because I could look at my parents' lives and see that their Christianity was not fake. It was real. They were living for Jesus Christ. They had problems. They made mistakes every once in a while. But they were living a life for Jesus Christ. They were trying to serve Him with all their heart, with all their soul, and with all their mind. I appreciated that. And therefore, I, too, tried to live for Jesus Christ. As I was coming up through school, I would take my Bible to school. Sometimes I took two or three of them just to look super spiritual. And I would read the Bible and memorize it and things like that. And I was really seeking to live for the Lord and be the kind of person that God wanted me to be. And I got a reputation. I believe it was partially because of my father's reputation already. Everybody knew he was a Christian and therefore expected me to be a Christian. But I think partially it was because I took my Bible to school and tried to live for the Lord. People used to call me Reverend Ronald McDonald, things like that. <laughs> I remember walking along once behind two friends of mine, and they were talking and using some bad language as they were talking. They happened to turn around and see me, and they said, Oh, I'm sorry, Ron, I didn't see you there. I wouldn't have been talking like that. In a sense, that was difficult because people wouldn't be real around me. They wouldn't be themselves around me because they knew what I stood for and therefore they were trying to sort of fake it, sort of try to, to make a good impression on me because I stood for something that they really were a little bit guilty about. They knew they should be living a little more for the Lord Jesus Christ. You all have probably heard, I'm sure, the story of, of Saul and Samuel and how Saul became king of Israel. The, the children of Israel, the people of Israel decided that they needed a king and therefore they decided to tell Samuel, okay Samuel, we want to get a king. And Samuel said, okay, if you want to get a king, we'll get you a king. But actually, God, it wasn't in God's plan. It, God didn't really want Israel to have a king. God wanted himself to be Israel's king. So later on, Samuel was talking to the children of Israel in 1 Samuel 12, verses 20 through 25, and he said, 
Samuel said to the people, Fear not, ye have done all this wickedness, yet turn not aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart, and turn ye not aside. For then should ye go after vain things, which cannot profit nor deliver, for they are vain. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it hath pleased the Lord to make you his people. Moreover, as for me, God forbid that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you, but I will teach you the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart, for consider how great things he hath done for you. But if ye shall still do wickedly, ye shall be consumed, both ye and your king. The verse there that I want to point out mainly is verse 24. It says, Only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart, for consider how great things he hath done for you. Most people would look at me now as well as back then and think, Boy, he's a pretty spiritual guy. He's really living for the Lord. He's reading his Bible and everything like that. He's the kind of guy I'd like to be. And they would look at me on the outside and they would think I have no problems. But it is not so. I have problems. I sin. I do wrong. I don't want to, but I do. Israel did wrong in choosing a king. But Samuel said to them, after they had sinned, Only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all your heart. For consider how great things he hath done for you. Even after we have done wrong, God does not turn his back on us and say, I don't want to have anything to do with Ron Richardson anymore. He sinned. He did wrong. But instead, God looks at us and he wants us to continue living for him, even though we have failed him once or twice in the past. He wants us, first of all, to fear the Lord. And it has been said that the fear of the Lord is a continual awareness that God is watching and weighing everything that we think, everything we say, everything we do, our every attitude. And we need to have that consciousness. Realize that God is alive and that he's watching us. He knows what's going on in our lives. And he wants us to live for him. It says to fear the Lord. And secondly, it says to serve him in truth with all your heart. We need not only to realize that he is there and that he is watching us, but we need to be seeking to please him in everything that we do, everything we say, and everything we think in our every attitude. That doesn't mean that we are going to live a perfect life, because we will fail. We will fail the Lord many times. We'll do wrong. But God encourages us not to give up on this Christian life, but to really seek to fear him and to serve him. A couple chapters later, Samuel was talking to Saul, and he talked about sacrifice not being nearly as pleasing to the Lord as obedience. Instead of doing everything that we're supposed to be doing for the Israelites who was offering sacrifices. For us, it's coming to church, it's reading our Bible and looking spiritual, looking spiritual before people. Instead of doing that, we need to be making sure that we are seeking to obey the Lord. Not to make an impression on people around us, but just to please the Lord. Very often, we in our churches are hypocritical. We want to please everybody around us. We want to impress everybody around us. But we need to be seeking with all our heart to please the Lord and not people. I'm very happy to have heard Ron's testimony this morning, and I can't resist after watching three football games this year, watching Larry Wilson's son, who is going to be all world. He picks up more yards than anyone I think I've ever seen play football. Anyway, uh, 
uh, watching the high school football has brought back a lot of memories. And uh, I couldn't help but think about Ronnie, who was an all-state linebacker in South Carolina. And uh, he's a sweet kid, but he doesn't look like it. And uh, uh, linebackers are not noted for sweetness and light. But uh, <laughs> in one game, uh, he was playing in South Carolina on a championship ball club. Uh, a boy had just uh, intercepted a pass or received a pass in Ronnie's area. And so Ronnie popped him with sufficient uh, vigor to the point that the ball, boy coughed up the ball. And the guy jumped up off the ground and looked at Ronnie and said, what did you do that for? And, and Ronnie said, what did you expect me to do? <laughs> Football is a rough game. <laughs> and living the Christian life is an interesting game. We're going to read a little bit of this morning in a lesson about laborers in a vineyard. We're studying the second in a series of sermons that will deal with discipleship. And discipleship means discipline, and discipleship means learning, and discipleship means submission to the Lord. And this is what we've got to keep in mind. When we st let me make this uh, suggestion. As you study along in these parables of discipleship, uh, keep a, a journal. Make a little notebook someplace and put it by your New Testament. And if you study these parables week by week or after the sermon on Sunday morning, go in and fill in the insights that the Holy Spirit gives to you from the study of that particular passage of Scripture. Write down your reactions, the emotions that you felt, and what you think this passage is teaching you about what God requires of you. Always look for the element of surprise, because in that element of surprise, God will be teaching you something and apply it uh, to yourself. Last week, we studied about the parable of the two brothers. You remember the story that we read about then. We saw two brothers who were told to go and to work in the vineyard. You remember we said one of them was a, a terror at breakfast and a joy at supper, and that one of them was very pleasant at breakfast, but he was a horror at supper. Because the father had said to two of his sons, to the first one, he said, go work in the vineyard. And he said very piously, yes, father, I'll go and work in your vineyard. And then he did not go and work. And he said to the second son, go work in the vineyard, son. And he said, no, I won't. And he was very arrogant and rude. Uh, but then later in the day, he realized that he had made a serious mistake. He repented, and that's the key word, he repented. He saw the other people working in his father's vineyard, and he went back from whatever he wanted to do, and he did go and work in the vineyard. And then Jesus asked a question, which one did the will of his father? Uh, the, one, the one who was so agreeable and pleasant and pious and religious at first, or the one who hassled his father and disagreed with him and then later repented? And so even the the scribes and the Sadducees who were there had to agree that it was the one who had finally obeyed his father. And you remember that I told you then that it is better to finally believe what at first you cannot say than to say at first what you will never believe. Do not talk one inch beyond your experience. And so that's important. Now then, today we pick up another parable of the kingdom. 
a parable of discipleship at verse uh, 1 of chapter 20 of the Gospel of Matthew. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. And when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius for the day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour, and he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to those he said, you too, go into the vineyard, and whatever is right, I will give you. And so they went. And again he went about the sixth hour and the ninth hour and did the same thing. And about the eleventh hour he went out, and he found others standing. And he said to them, why have you been standing here idle all day long? And they said to him, because no one has hired us. And he said to them, you too, go into the vineyard. And when the evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to the foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last group to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each one received a denarius. That was a silver coin, the wage of a working man for a day. And when those hired first came, they thought that they would receive more. And they also received each one a denarius. And when they received it, they grumbled at the landowner, saying, These last men have worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the scorching heat of the day. But he answered and said to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go your way. But I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I am generous? Thus, the last shall be first, and the first shall be last. May God bless to us an understanding of this part of his word. It always helps a little bit in the understanding of the parables if you try to see them in their context. They are marvelous stories that Jesus told in which he is seeking to illustrate for our minds and hearts the truths of how God deals with us and our responsibilities in discipleship and in a relationship to him. Keep very much in your mind that God's ways are not our ways, nor his thoughts our thoughts. He does not deal with us as men deal with each other. And that's one of the things that comes out very apparently as you study especially this parable that has to do with the workers in this unusual landowner who sent them into his field. You have to know something of the background of what had just taken place. You have to realize that the parable came about as a result of the encounter of the rich young ruler with Jesus. This man who had money and manners and morals, who came running to Jesus, frustrated with the life he had been living and realizing that he was still devoid of something essential, and crying out to Jesus, Good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus gave him a list of the commandments, omitting conspicuously the one about covetousness. 
and said to him, do you know these commandments? And the guy said, look, I've kept all of these ever since I was a youth. I've lived that way, but something's still missing. And then Mark tells us that Jesus looked at him and loved him. And he said, you lack one thing. Go sell everything that you have, give it to the poor, and come take up your cross and follow me. At this we are told that his countenance fell. He looked very sad. And he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. He left Jesus. Now, Jesus did not run after the rich young ruler and say, hey, wait a minute. I think we can work this out. You'd make a great Christian testimony. And uh, I'd like for you to come back and suppose you just start off by giving us 20%. He didn't bargain with him. The gospel tells us the truth. It's not a propaganda document. Not everyone presented with the gospel is going to be saved. And not all the brainy, intelligent, rich ones are. Some of them are going to go away, just like this young man. And so the gospel tells us the flat truth. He went away sorrowful. He turned down Jesus and went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Now, Peter was not one to let something like this go by without having a word to say. Uh, you see, when this man went away... Uh, Jesus said to him, uh, said to Jesus, uh, Peter said to Jesus, Lord, behold, we left everything and followed you. What will we have? You see, Peter had left his boats and his nets and his fishing business. He wasn't as rich as this other fellow, but he left everything he had. And when you left all you got, that's all you can leave. And he followed Jesus. And he said, we left everything we had and followed you. What shall we have? And Jesus said, truly I say to you, that those of you who have followed me in the generation when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father, or mother, or children, or farms, for my sake, shall receive many times as much, and shall inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. I think this set the occasion for this next story, which Jesus tells about discipleship. It's a very unusual landowner. He has gone out early in the morning to the marketplace where people gather to be hired. It's just barely daylight, six o'clock in the morning, and here the people are gathered together looking for work, and the landowner hires them to go and to work in his vineyard, but he makes a deal with them. He says to them, you go and work in my vineyard today, and I'll give you a denarius for a day's work. A silver coin uh, would be given to them for their work that day in the vineyard. So they agreed on this, and they went and worked. Well, later, about 9 o'clock in the morning, which would be the third hour of the day, 
he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And so he went to them and he said, you too go into the vineyard and whatever is right, he didn't say he would give them a denarius. He said, whatever is right, I will give you. And so they went. And again, he went at the sixth hour. That's 12 o'clock noon. And the ninth hour, that's three in the afternoon, and did the same thing. And about the 11th hour, that's five o'clock, an hour before quitting time. They would quit at six o'clock. And about the 11th hour, he went out and found others standing, and he said to them, why have you been standing here idle all day long? And they said to him, because no one has hired us. And he said to them, you too, go into the vineyard. And when evening had come, the owner of the vineyard, let me stop right here and make a few comments that will help you. Tonight, John Anderson and Ronald Reagan will be talking on television in a big debate. Jimmy Carter will be watching it on TV at the White House again. But one of the things they'll talk about will be unemployment. And unemployment has been with us a long time. And it's a very sad thing to be unemployed. If you take Newsweek magazine, you can read a very dramatic and moving account uh, that a young woman writes in Newsweek this week in their essay page on what it feels like to come in and be fired and let go of your job. What it feels like to go and start looking other places for jobs. What it feels like to go line up at the unemployment office. It's not a good feeling. And some of us who were children of the Great Depression and who saw our fathers or our mothers under the bite of that terrible depression know something about this. So unemployment is a, a terrible thing. And here the Lord Jesus recognizes this. It was there then. And uh, so he uses as an illustration about working in his kingdom. And so when the evening comes, when 6 o'clock comes and it's quitting time, those who were hired first came and they thought uh, uh, they would receive. And when those hired about the 11th hour came, the, he told the paymaster, take the last ones first and give each one of them a silver coin. They didn't expect to get that much because they had only worked an hour. But they got a silver coin. And when those hired first came, they thought that they would receive much more. They watched these fellows that had worked only an hour, and there the paymaster was giving them a silver coin. And then they watched the fellows that had been hired at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, he gave them a silver coin. And they watched the ones that had been hired at noon, he gave them a silver coin. They watched the ones that had been hired at 9 o'clock, he gave them a silver coin. And then they thought, man, we went to work early this morning at 6 o'clock. He's going to really give it to us. And when they got there... He handed them a silver coin. Well, you can imagine what the labor unions would do to you today if you tried that. <laughs> uh, they grumbled. They grumbled. This has always been something that the church has. They grumbled at the landowner. They grumbled at God. They grumbled at Jesus. They said, these last men have worked only one hour. And you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the scorching heat of the day. But he answered and said to one of them, and you know, 
Jesus is the one who's telling this story. And notice that Jesus himself is the one who puts in this acrimonious language against him. Jesus is the one who understands. He's sympathetic with these people who went to work at 6 that morning. He knows how it feels. He's sympathetic with them. And so he's the one that uses the words, we have borne the scorching heat and the burden of the day. Now look, but he answered and said to one of them, friend, and that's the same way the father and the prodigal son speaks to the elder brother, you remember, who was angry, same thing, angry and would not go in when there was music and rejoicing because his prodigal brother had come home again and he wouldn't even go in the house and he was out there sulking and his father had to come out to him and his father put his arm around him and he said son I have you with me always and all that I have is yours now he said your brother was lost and is found again and it was right that we should rejoice what Jesus is teaching here is the grace of God don't ever forget that what he is teaching us here is the grace of God. That God's grace is greater than all our sins. Now let me tell you something that's worth writing down this week. This parable will always offend those who apply to it the rules of strict justice or sound economics. But it was not written to, tr to teach that. To such people, the only reply, and this is, comes from T.W. Manson, the only reply is that it is fortunate for most of us that God does not deal with us on the basis of strict justice and sound economics. He's teaching grace. In the last resort, the rewards of such poor service as men can give to the kingdom are not an exact something given for something received. They are an expression of God's love toward his servants. God's love cannot be proportioned out in quantities. Now listen to this. There was a denarius that he promised to give. And there was a little coin called a poiadin that was the twelfth part of a denarius. And the landowner could have strictly given to those who worked one hour that little twelfth part of a denarius. But what Jesus teaches is that there is no twelfth part of the love of God. No twelfth part of the love of God. And he wants Peter to know. You see, Peter is one of those people who started early. Peter and James and John. They were the first call. And when that rich young ruler went away and was sorrowful because he had great possessions, Peter is getting this parable spoken to him because he said, hey, wait a minute. We worked all day long. We've been with you from the very beginning. Now what are we going to have? And I think he was smarting a little bit after Jesus told this story because Jesus is telling us this so that we are to know that God's ways are not like man's ways. They're far more generous and loving. They're far more generous and loving. 
And aren't you glad they are? Because what would we do without the love of God being extended to us in this way? The, tw- the 11th hour has become a sort of a pro- proverbial expression that we use in our language today. The 11th hour is the last minute. Now, can you think of some people who might be comforted by the fact that they were saved at the last minute? What about that thief who was nailed on the cross by Jesus? When Jesus was nailed on the cross, was Jesus envious of those Roman soldiers who nailed him to the cross? Was Jesus envious of Caiaphas and Annas and all those other people? No, Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them. Forgive them. Your grace is for them to be forgiven. Father, forgive them. I want them to be forgiven. They don't know what they're doing. And when that man nailed by him said to him, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus said to him, today, Thou shalt be with me in paradise. His feet were nailed to a cross. He never carried any messages for the Lord. His hands were nailed to a cross. He never did any work for the Lord. And yet, he went home to heaven with Jesus that day. He went home to heaven with Jesus that day. And what this parable is saying is that it's never too late. It's never too late. He'll take you at the 11th hour. And it's a great encouragement to us that some of us that he spoke to at 9 o'clock in the morning and we didn't pay any attention. And some of us that he spoke to at noon and we didn't pay any attention. And some of us that he spoke to in the afternoon of our life and we didn't pay any attention. And some of us that he spoke to an hour before quitting time and we heard him and responded that he would receive us. Now there's no comeback from us if we have the spirit of Christ to say, why is he so loving? And that's what he says here to these people. Why do you have an envious and evil eye is what the old King James version puts on it. Uh, And it's a good expression, an evil eye means somebody who looks at everyone else with an evil eye when something good happens. They're jealous and envious. And that's a wrong spirit. And that's what Jesus wants to correct in Peter. Now let me say just a few things here. First, about the 11th hour. Samuel Rutherford was one of the greatest of all the saints who ever lived on the face of this earth. A wee, tiny little man who died in St. Andrews, Scotland one of the covenanters, one of those who loved the Lord Jesus with all of his heart and would not bend even though they put him in the cold prison in Aberdeen until his lungs were full of consumption, tuberculosis, and he was dying. And when they started putting these people to death because they would not give up their worship of the pure gospel of Christ, old Samuel Rutherford was lying on his bed dying. And they came from the high sheriff's office in Edinburgh and they summonsed him to appear before the court in Edinburgh. And I'll always love what Samuel Rutherford said. 
Go, he said to the sheriff. Go tell your masters that I've already received a prior summons to appear before a superior judge and judicatory. And ere your day come, I shall be where few kings and great folk go. That was Samuel Rutherford. But when did Samuel Rutherford come to Christ? A man like that? It wasn't at the 11th hour, but it was late. He said, fool that I was, I let the sun rise high into the heavens before I found Jesus as my Lord. And he wanted each one of us not to let the sun go up high into the heavens before we find Jesus as our Lord. He wants us to give our lives to him. Now, one of the things that Ron told you, he was raised in a Christian home, that from the earliest days of his life, he learned the words of the gospel and scripture, and he saw in his mother and father a, a, a Christian life. And I love that kind of testimony. It's nice to have someone come up here who's not an addict at three years of age and uh, uh, in trouble all the time. Here's a guy who was raised in a Christian home. Now, there's room for all sorts. But what did these workers who came at the 11th hour miss? They missed the fellowship of being with their Lord. One of the greatest intellects I ever heard is a man by the name of Oswald Guinness. I heard him at a lecture. There was a seminar on evangelism to university and college campuses at Lausanne in Switzerland. Os Guinness is an Oxford scholar. And Os Guinness gave his testimony. And Oswald Guinness said this in his testimony. He said there are three Guinnesses, Guinness families in Ireland where I come from. The Guinnesses that make beer and are very wealthy and the Guinnesses that are in the banking business and who are very wealthy and the Guinnesses who are poor Christians. I am from the third group of Guinnesses. He said, my grandmother was a missionary to China, Plymouth Brethren. I grew up in a Christian home. I can never remember a time when I did not believe in Jesus as my Savior. But you know, that's a sweet testimony because it shows the joy and the blessing that he got. He got to be with his Lord all this time. And that's a blessing. So we're not envious of other people. We're glad. Now, we work for the night is coming. We work because we love Jesus. Uh, if Oscar Peterson plays the piano, and increases the tempo twice as fast because he's that good a pianist. He didn't get that way overnight. He got that way by working at it. So every one of us should work at our opportunities to witness for the Lord. Albert Einstein, in developing the theory of general relativity, he didn't get that when he was smoking dope some afternoon in the hills of Zurich. Uh, he got it working over it over a period of years. And so if we get an early start in life with Jesus Christ, then we have an opportunity to work hard and to accomplish something for the Savior. And he wants us to know this. And he also wants us to know 
that these people who do come in at the 11th hour have something important to teach us. Sometimes they have lessons to teach us that we wouldn't, we wouldn't learn if they didn't show them to us. They have a freshness about them and a gratitude about them that's just absolutely wonderful and we get blessed as a result of that. And these others had the joy of being close to their Lord, close to their King. And that's an important thing to remember. Wouldn't it be wonderful to have started early in life and to keep hold of Jesus and had the joy of his fellowship all the way? So when we go into the gates of heaven, none of us go in bragging. We all go in by grace, grace that is greater than all our sins. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you will add your blessings to us. There are big lessons that we've got this morning. We've got little chunks of it, and we can work it out this afternoon and as we contemplate later the great meaning of this story that we've read. Help us to know what true discipleship means. It means that all of us rejoice that we are saved by grace. We thank you that the love of God is so great and that it reaches so far and that it reaches those even at the very last hour. And if there's some person here who feels discouraged, not because he's old and has not yet accepted Christ, but because he's young and his life seems so misspent, Help them to know that you love that person too, but that they're going the wrong direction and there's no need to keep on going that way. They can stop right now and go to Jesus and know that he will receive them where they are and that he will make them what they ought to become. And so we pray that as we are dismissed and as the Holy Spirit follows us away from this place, that some of the things that we've sung and heard and thought about might be kept in our minds and that your will might be accomplished in our lives. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the communion and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, our keeper and guide, be and abide with you all, now and forevermore.